If you could, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We will begin in chapter 2 today. We will be looking at the message to Ephesus, which I will title, Don't Lose Your Lampstand. And um, we'll be reading those seven verses. Um, For those that are newer here, we're in a series uh, in the book of Revelation. Good news, we really just started. We We've done two messages. I, I would encourage you to go online. You can listen to those uh, either on our YouTube channel or you can just go to our website and listen to the audio under resources, Sunday sermons. You can uh, ca- catch up with those. Laid a lot of groundwork that will be important as we work our way forward uh, in this book. Uh, but I will tell you what I told said on the first time is when we get finished with this series, we will not, uh, you will not know when Jesus is coming back, and you will not know who the Antichrist is. So I can assure you of those two things. Um, probably a whole lot of other things that you might suspect you would not learn about, but you will not. Uh, but if you would, we, we are going to jump into Revelation 2, verse 7, and begin reading there. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Heavenly Father, as we come to hear afresh the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave to his servant John, that he might give it to his servants like us. Open our hearts and eyes to hear that we might hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we launch specifically into the message to the church in Ephesus, um, I've kind of got a double task today. I need to introduce the chapters 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches as a whole, and then go in and speak to this particular message. And my plan is right now to spend one week on each of those uh, messages, uh, because I think they're significant to understanding the rest of the book. But um, who are the seven churches? Let's just start with that. Who are the seven churches? Uh, In Revelation 1-4, John informs us that the whole book, this whole revelation, is being sent to seven churches in the province of Asia. Then in chapter 1, verse 11, the vision proper begins with a voice like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these are seven actual churches. They're given by name. And must be read in light of their particular, each message must be read in light of their particular circumstance. But don't miss the symbolism of seven either. That the seven churches are representative of the whole. That's the point. That they, in some way, as we'll see as we go along, represent the entire cosmos, the whole world, in some sense. So, seven signifies wholeness here. Um, Therefore, each of the messages in chapters 2 and 3 identifies um, one uh, of the seven to which it is directed. So you get to one, it's to Ephesus, you got Smyrna, and so forth. 
So each of the messages identifies one of the seven to which it is directed, yet each also concludes with, let the one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each one is to a specific church, to be understood in their context, yet each one is to everyone, to every church. And, and they, they must hear what the Spirit is saying to the church is, not just to that church. Each message is to their, a church in their circumstance, and each message was to all the churches. Now, the broader implication of that is that each message is to us, the church today. And not just us, the church today, but us at Gulf Coast Community Church happens to meet at 555 76th Avenue North on Sunday mornings at 10. Very specifically, it's to us. And in chapter 1, verse 12, what John has told us to write on a scroll and send to the seven churches is not just chapters 2 and 3. John is told to write what he sees, the entire vision, which goes all the way through you know, almost the end of chapter 22. It's got some closing material, but the vision proper goes through there. That is what he is to send to the seven churches, the whole thing. And it's of a piece. And that's worth noting. Now, I've referred to these messages, you may have noticed, in week one, week two, and so far today, in a variety of ways. Uh, I've referred to them as so-called letters to the churches. I don't know if anyone picked up on that. So-called letters to the churches. Uh, or messages to the churches, which I've been using. Uh, and prophetic messages. Now, I'll tell you right up, that this does not matter a ton, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter at all, uh, because it, it does impact how we look at the book of Revelation. So, um, it's, it's worth noting this, these are not letters, chapters 2 and 3. They're always called, and most of your Bibles probably have a heading, letters to the seven churches, but they're not letters, okay? And let me explain. Jeff Wyma. Uh, whose academic expertise is letters of that period, uh, New Testament letters, but also of letters of that time period. He said this, Despite their almost universal identification as the seven letters, these seven passages do not exhibit even a single formal feature typically found in either New Testament letters or secular letters of that day. Not a single characteristic of a letter. So, And others have said the same. He wasn't the first, but it isn't popular. But here's the point. If they're not letters, it might help us to know what they are. (laughs) If they're not letters, it it, it would help. And, and, uh, you know, we know how to recognize letters. It's not all that hard. Uh, They're usually dated at the top, identified, the recipient, dear so-and-so, or to whom it may concern. Uh, And then it has the content of the letter, and then a closing, sincerely, or yours truly, or love. Some, some kind of closing, and then it identifies the, the sender. Now, you can leave out some of those. You might leave off the closing. You might just end it with your name, right? And, and that's fine. It's still a letter. But if it has none of the attributes of a letter, you would never look at it and say, oh, that's a letter. You know, we all familiar in my generation. It still exists today, but the, the column that was called Dear Abby. It didn't take a genius to figure out immediately that that was, the idea was that people were writing letters to somebody named Abby, and that they were getting answers to their questions. Why? Just simply by saying, Dear Abby. That said enough to know this was a letter type of correspondence. Um, So, the first audience that received the, the book of Revelation, these seven churches, for instance, they would not have thought of these as letters. They would not have thought of these as letters. Uh, So, then what are they? Well, in short, they're prophetic messages. In certain church circles, you might hear someone begin to share something with, Thus saith the Lord. You ever been in an environment where they get up and, Thus saith the Lord. Like Pete got up to share an encouragement this morning. Had he gotten up and started with, Thus saith the Lord. You know. Yeah, whoa, okay. <clears throat> Some kind of claim being made here, right? Um, it comes from something, right? It comes from our old English Bible out of the Old Testament prophets, right? They introduced things with, thus saith the Lord, or maybe they said something and then finished it with, says the Lord, or if it's old English, saith the Lord, right? And so if somebody uses that language, you know that they're at least attempting to say, this is a prophetic message from God, right? Well, the words used at the beginning of each of these messages 
the one who, you know, uh, such and such says this, the, the language used in the Greek New Testament in the book of Revelation is archaic language, very archaic like, thus saith the Lord. And it wouldn't have been common to use in that day. In fact, it came right out of the Old Testament in the prophets where they said, what we have in our Old English Bibles, thus saith the Lord, or says the Lord. It was the same pattern of language. It's for a reason. It's indicating that these are prophetic messages from Christ through John the prophet to his church. Okay? So that's, that's what they are. They, they're framed in an apocalyptic vision that starts in chapter 1, verse 12. And they themselves are certainly a little apocalyptic, but largely prophetic. Less apocalyptic, more prophetic, because you know, it's why we read them and we think to ourselves, oh, I, I get these, I don't get the rest of the book, right? Prophetic's a little easier to understand, it's, it's, it's more direct to us. Apocalyptic is full of all sorts of symbolisms and visions. Now, there's some of that in it, but it's, it's, it leans in the direction of prophetic language. Why does it matter? Well, that's always a good question to ask. Why does it matter? I mean, in truth, I'm not going to die on the hill. In fact, I may actually, actually slip and call them letters at some point during our series. I mean, it wouldn't, wouldn't shock me. I even wrote letters in this sermon and caught it later and said, oh, I've got to write it, take out letters, you know. Replace it. It's just, it's a habit, right? It's not a major issue, but considering these as letters does separate them from the rest of the vision and tends to make us think that this is a book that has two pieces. You've got this section of letters, and then you've got the vision, the, the, the part that's prophetic. And that gives us the wrong frame for interpreting the whole thing. So that's why I think it's relevant and it matters. Um, if they are prophetic messages given within the one collection of visions, beginning at 112, then they are of one piece with the rest. If we view these as individual cover letters for each of the seven churches, that's what I was told they were when I was young and being taught the book of Revelation. These are cover letters to each of the churches. Now, when I hear that, at least I don't know what everybody does, but I, I know that what I envisioned is that, well, Ephesus got the rest of the vision with their cover letter, and Smyrna got the rest of the message with their cover letter, and on down the line. And, of course, these are messages just for them, but they're not really relevant to understanding the rest of the book. Because, of course, if... You're not sending me six of them. You're only sending me one of them. How could they be particularly relevant to understanding the rest of the book? So, thinking of them as cover letters makes them dispensable to understanding the rest of the book when, in fact, they are indispensable to understanding the rest of the book. Now, the next thing I want to talk about in overviewing the, the letters is the condition of the churches. The condition of the churches. The arrangement and content of the messages reflect that the general condition of the church in that day um, was largely unhealthy. Uh, let, let me explain what I mean by arrangement. John uses, and we've got a slide for this, and see if we can get it. There we go. John uses something that's called a chiasm. Now, I'm not going to deeply explain chiasm, but that's an illustration of it. Notice it's the left side of an X. If you kind of did this, you'd have a full X. That, a key is a letter that looked like an X in, in their uh, alphabet. So that's why, where it gets its name. But it, it, Jewish writers use this a lot. It was very Hebrew. And John uh, uses it here. Matthew uses it. I've written about chiasm in a paper. You can find it on our website. But um, Ephesus, Thyatira, and Laodicea are in the prominent places of a chiasm, meaning the first and the last and the center. Whatever's in the center, it's like the point of an arrow. That's the driving point. Well, those are the three unhealthiest churches of the seven. They are the three unhealthiest. So the emphasis is on unhealthy. Now, if you go to the next slide, you'll also see that if we add in the other two that are unhealthy, that five of seven are unhealthy. And again, note the arrangement, three of those are in the center. So the predominant message is that the churches are unhealthy. Um, and some of these are with some really bad situations. Now, it doesn't mean that all of them were unhealthy, right? There's some health, and we'll look at those as well, and that's important to see. Um, it's not unusual to hear 
people romanticized that the church in that time was so much healthier than the church in our day. But frankly, there's no evidence for that. They were really unhealthy then. I mean, check out 1 Corinthians, just as case in point. I mean, if you think that's bad, try Galatians. I mean, he has nothing good to say to them. It's pretty rough. So, here's the thing. Um, If they were not healthy, then it has something to say to us today because we in the church today are unhealthy. I would, I would characterize the church in America today at large as unhealthy, and we are not exempt from being influenced by that. I don't say that as if, they're unhealthy, look at us, look at it. Right now, no, not the case at all. Uh, in fact, to the degree that we think we're some grand exception, it only highlights our unhealthiness um, in that. Oh, don't get me wrong, I'd love to be able to profess that if it were true, um, but we'd be being dishonest. Um, so Revelation, the whole of it, was sent to a largely unhealthy church, which means its message is relevant for us. And then, finally, I want to speak to the issue of angels. These letters are sent to the angels of the seven churches. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I to a certain degree, find that to be odd. Like, I mean, I don't know. How do you send a letter to an angel? What's the address? It's not a letter, of course. Um, <clears throat> but that's how we think of it, Right? And how, but even a prophetic message. Why give a prophetic message to an angel? Why would, why would you do that? What good is it going to do to give it to an angel? Um, sometimes, angelos, that's the Greek word for angel, is rightly translated messenger. So some have said, well, it's just seven messengers to the churches. And if it's read that way, it might refer to the person bringing the book and delivering it to that congregation. Um, Or it might refer, as some have said, to the pastors. Some say the seven pastors of the churches. Uh, I kind of liked that one because, you know, I get kind of mentioned sort of vicariously, you know, in the text, right? So, but no, I I don't think that's it. And here's why. In apocalyptic literature, uh, angelos almost exclusively refers to angels, spiritual beings. And in apocalyptic literature, it would be perfectly normal to send a prophetic message to an angel, to interact with an angel. In some form, fashion, or that would be kind of it wouldn't be off the beaten path in any way, shape, or form. So, I'm sorry, I keep playing with this microphone. It's the, right before I went up here, I, it kind of broke, and so then we kind of hobbled it back together, and you know, so here we are. Um, <clears throat> it'll be fixed by next week, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> so, what is the significance of sending these messages to the angel of the church? That's the bigger question. Well. Here, like the stars or heavenly bodies that represent the angels. Remember, the seven stars are the seven angels, right? So like the stars or what we might call heavenly bodies, which actually in their age represented the seven planets, as they knew it, as they thought it at that time. Um, These angels are heavenly beings that help to guide and to guard the church to which they are assigned. You might call them a guardian angel or guiding angel. I mean, they're, they're to help guide that church. So the prophetic message is very relevant because their role is to help bring about correction and, and to aid that church. You see, there's more than what meets the eye going on in your church. The church is primarily a spiritual entity that operates in a spiritual world. This makes things like prayer, sacrificial giving, worship, preaching, resisting sin, obedience to Christ, and so forth, way more significant than we might think they are. Amen. These angels are a source of help for the churches. In in the book of Daniel, and again, there's a lot of connections there that we've already talked about, but in the book of Daniel, angels were both a source of protection for God's people and would do spiritual battle on behalf of God's people. Okay? You say, how does that work? I have no idea. Absolutely none. I, I don't. But that's the implication here. Now, So we're going to take a look at the prophetic message to the angel of the Ephesian church. Um, And we're going to do that under five headings. The first 
is Christ's credentials. Christ's credentials. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars. Remember that phrase, these are the words, that's the thing that was thus, saith the Lord, okay? If they were translating it as archaic as it, it sounded to the original audience. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each of the prophetic messages expresses an aspect of Christ's description that was found in chapter 1 in the vision of Christ. Um, And it speaks to his credentials or we could say qualifications relevant to what he's going to say to that church. The first that we have here uh, to the Ephesians is, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, we already know from the first chapter that the seven stars, or heavenly bodies, represent the heavenly beings, the angels, to the seven churches. There's another important connection, and that is that Jesus is holding the seven stars. That statement alone is subversive to Rome. And in particular, it's subversive to the then-emperor Domitian. See, emperors liked to present themselves on coins, um, controlling not only the earth, but the planets and stars as well. Uh, Wyman notes, quote, After the death of his ten-year-old son in A.D. 83, so roughly a decade prior to the writing of this revelation, Domitian declared that the boy had become a god and that his wife Domitia became the mother of a god. It's kind of him to include the mom. Uh, He issued a coin to honor his deceased son that portrays the son sitting on a globe in a position of power over the world. Now, we've got a slide, if we can get that up. That's the front of, that's his wife, Domitian. Makes me wonder why, you know, not wonder why he was grumpy. And then over here, um, I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, I'll just blame it on the artist. How's that? But over here on the right, You've got his son, the the 10-year-old, on top of the world. And note the seven stars or the seven planets which he is holding. It looks like he's kind of juggling them. But the point is that he is the one in charge of the entire cosmos as a god. Okay? Well, by Jesus saying he's the one who holds with his right hand the seven stars... It means that he is the one that has all power over the cosmos. Okay? And, of course, it's subversive to Rome and the emperor in particular. Um, So, you can read the rest of that quote. I've just said it in my own words. But um, Now, Domitian himself considered himself a god with no less control of the heavens and the earth. And... Jesus, not Caesar, is the all-powerful one. Not just on earth, but also in the heavens. The Christ followers in ancient Ephesus, as well as Christ followers today, should pay careful attention to what their all-powerful Savior is about to say. That the stars represented the whole of heaven and earth and were associated with the church highlights that Jesus rules over all things through the church. So the seven... Stars represent the seven angels and the seven churches, but they, they represent the whole church, but they don't just represent the whole church. Really, they're a snapshot of the entire cosmos, which for the Jewish mind was no big deal because if you went to the temple back before it was destroyed and you got to the, the place where the, the Holy of Holy was, there was a, a, a curtain in front of it, and on that tapestry was the entire cosmos. Why? Because they believed that that was the center of the cosmos, and there, everything there was the whole cosmos and microcosm. Well, in effect, everything in the church, the whole of the church, is the whole cosmos and microcosm because Christ rules over everything in heaven and earth through the church. Amen? Then he gives another credential. Is, and that is that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. So he is both powerful and present. Because he is present, he sees. Because he sees, he knows them. 
His power and presence also mean that he is able and present to carry out the warning if they do not repent or give the blessing if they do repent. He's able and present. He must be listened to. It is significant that in a message which ends with the threat of removing their lampstand, Jesus' credential is mentioned that he walks among the lampstands. I mean, that, that's relevant. <laughs> that's what, what, what you'd call a clue if you did police work, right? That's, that, because the, he's threatening to remove their lampstand, but Jesus is the one who walks among them. So lampstand is being highlighted. We need to pay attention to that and understand it if we're going to understand what's going on in this letter. So what is the significance of lampstands? How do they relate to churches? Well, lampstands highlight deeds and witness. Recall Zechariah, we looked at it in the last couple of weeks. Um, he had a vision of a lampstand with seven branches. Not seven lampstands, but one with seven. That was Israel. Israel had been called to be the light of the world. Isaiah 42 and 49 both uh, reference that calling. But of course, we know they had failed. And so their lampstand was put out, removed, and it was given to the church to be the light of the world. And Ephesus, one of the seven, is in threat of losing it still. Now, why lampstands? Well, lampstands were made to be put, our, our, our lamps were made to be put on a lampstand. Right? Lights were made to be put, if you will, on a lampstand. Jesus' teaching on this is instructive to our text. In Matthew 5, you're probably familiar with these verses. You, speaking to the disciples, so we'll call it the church, because in Matthew he does call it the church later. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay? Now, first off, it's important to note that you individually are not the light of the world. These are plural second-person you know, nouns. And, and so you, referencing the, the disciples, the church, are the light of the world. And... You can't put it under a bowl. You can't hide the light. If you do hide the light, everyone, it, it, then, then it's going to go out. But the calling of the light is to let your light shine before others that they may see what? Your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's our witness to the world. Now we're going to see that this is exactly the problem the church was having in Ephesus. Their light was not shining and no one could see their good deeds. British author and politician Katrina Mayer said, quote, Let your light shine so, so brightly that others can see their way out of the dark. Well, she may have unwittingly communicated the mission of the church. One which Ephesus, not to mention the church today, failed at. The church's witness as the light of the world for all to see is not an optional extra but essential to its very existence. Second heading, Christ's commendation. Christ's commendation. Verse 2. I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. In, in, in a post-Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and manipulate people world. I'm sorry, did I say manipulate? I'm sorry, I meant to say influence. But, but, in, but in that world that we live in, when anyone, especially anyone in authority, begins by telling you a couple of good things you're doing, you know two things. The first is that the other shoe is about to drop. Right? And the second is that the compliments are disingenuous. You just, you just know, okay, they, they had to do that to manipulate me into accepting the other. Okay? Um, sadly, therefore, we tend to read that into Jesus' words to the Ephesians. I mean, some commentators go as far as to say that 
that this really wasn't a great commendation, it, 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 but he was highlighting something that was right. But actually, it's a very heartfelt commendation. And it's a very significant commendation. And, and interestingly enough, there's a pattern in these letters, and the pattern's broken here with Ephesus, because he not only commends them in verses 2 and 3, but then he comes back to commend them in verse 6, which highlights just how significant of a commendation that this is. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. The, the deeds consisted of their hard work and perseverance. That they had both actively resisted wicked people and passively endured. Jesus had been walking among them and saw these difficulties. He says, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. Hear the love and the appreciation in that statement. It can almost be felt. You've done this for me. For my cause. The Ephesian believers would not put up with false apostles. Now, the word apostle has three different uses in the New Testament. Um, and early writings of the church as well. First, there are the twelve, the foundation stones of the church. Um, second, apostolos, or apostolos, is sometimes used generically for messenger with no attached status. It's just a messenger. So it's just a messenger. Somebody sent to deliver a message, no particular office role uh, status that is attributed to it. Third, and the one that's referenced here, is believers who had a special function as God's messengers. Now, first, you can eliminate the first one because, well, everybody knew who the 12 apostles were. I mean, it was like, that wasn't really hard to figure out. And, and so, and it's not just somebody of no status because obviously there's something going on with these guys. So it's this third one. They're believers who had a special function as God's messengers. They might be compared to itinerant preachers and teachers who had a message from God. True ones were to be received by the church Churches, they were to be welcomed in, housed, fed, and so forth. And there are plenty of false teachers also, just as there are today. Why? Because, well, false teachers could get provided for. It was a way to get taken care of. And in a world of great poverty, if they had a smooth tongue, that worked out pretty well for them. Kind of like today, too. The Ephesian disciples weren't only concerned with getting all the doctrinal boxes checked. They apparently tested these would-be apostles by their fruit, just like Jesus taught us to do, by their deeds. For it says they would not tolerate wicked men. It doesn't say they would not tolerate error, though of course they wouldn't tolerate error. The point is they would not tolerate wicked men. They evaluated these apostles by their lives. How are they acting? What are they doing? Are they scamming people? Are they loving their neighbor? Okay. Now, I've got a slide up here that might be helpful. We think of orthodoxy, see, that right belief, right, you know, right doctrine, we could say. That's orthodoxy. Do I believe the right sets of things? Okay. Well, they had orthodoxy. But for them, orthodoxy was connected directly to orthopraxy, which is right practice. Did these leaders, were they wicked men, or were they bearing the fruits of righteousness? So for them, they weren't just evaluating strictly doctrine. They were evaluating doctrine in life and how they wove together. They were doing a good job. We see this in the additional commendation, which comes toward the end of the message, and, and that's this. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we're going to talk more about the Nicolaitans in the, the message to Pergamum. Um, don't, don't have time today, but suffice it to say that not only did the disciples at Ephesus judge apostles false who practiced, practiced wickedness, they also did not allow false teaching, which led to immoral practices such as the Nicolaitans. Jesus had warned that after his resurrection, many false prophets would appear and deceive many people. 
And the Ephesians had labored hard to keep this from happening and endured much in the process of doing so. Jesus was quite pleased with that. Amen? But the warning Jesus issued in the very next verse, after he said that many false prophets will appear and deceive many people, that warning they had not heeded. And that warning is when he said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The Ephesians' love, as we will see, has grown cold. In their efforts to deal with all the wrong that people were doing, they had forgotten to continue to love those in need of love. So let's look at this third heading, Christ's criticism. Yet I hold this against you, verse 4. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, now what is the love they had at first? Um, is it love for God or Jesus? You know, Jesus is my first love. That's how that's often used. Or is it love for others, one another and beyond? You know, love for one another and as that leaks out of our poorest borders to others. Which one is in mind here? Vertical or horizontal love? Love for God, love for one another. Well, there are several reasons why most scholars opt for the horizontal love, not the vertical love, with, toward God. Um, first, it's, it's unlikely that a church passionate about protecting the gospel would not love Christ uh, deeply. One who has abandoned passion for God isn't likely to be passionate about either truth or fruit in the lives of people. And you can see that. It would be easy to illustrate. Just think about the, the, the churches that have... have um, abandoned real passion for God, they've become more social, social in their entity entirely. And really, there's not a lot of passion for God and His Word. It's just yeah, truth. You could take a vacation. Love for others. Or, I'm sorry, I, I missed over, skipped over one. Secondly, we would say, when, when we get to the corrective of 5a, and you'll see it in a moment, they're instructed to do the works they did at the first. Well, that would be a more fitting cure if the criticism is regarding their love for others and how they engaged others. It doesn't really fit with the criticism being that their love for God was waning. Thirdly, love for others is more often at issue when the issue of witness or our light shining in the world is at stake. Okay? In other words, the warning that they may lose their lampstand, that it may be removed, their witness being snuffed out in the world, must inform how we read the correction. And since the lampstand is all about our witness of good deeds in the world, and our love one for another, to put it in John's language, then very likely that's what the problem is pointing to. And, and, and it fits. Okay, in John's Gospel we read, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Orthodoxy, <clears throat> right doctrine, and we got another slide here, okay? So, orthodoxy, right doctrine, right belief, and orthopraxy, right practice, must be accompanied by orthopathos. We could call that right feeling or right passion, Okay? Compassion. A frequent description of Christ in the Gospels is that he had compassion. Compassion's a feeling. Okay? Compassion's a feeling. In fact, the very word itself brings to mind like your entire innards being moved. It moves a person to action. It did Jesus. It starts deep within. It seems that the Ephesians had become so guarded against people that suspicion and mistrust, rather than compassion and pity, had taken over the atmosphere of the church. So guarded against people and their potential error, that suspicion and mistrust, rather than compassion and pity, had taken over as the atmosphere of the, in the church. The caring compassionate community they had once been was replaced with a cold a coldness ironically while they were intent on weeding out wicked deeds they fell into the trap of lovelessness gb care describes it quote the ephesians had set out to be defenders of the faith 
uh, arming themselves with the heroic virtues of truth and courage, only to discover that in the battle they had lost the one quality without which all others are worthless. Augustine had evidently seen a similar uh, thing in his experience because he wrote, Whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them as does not tend to build up the twofold love of God and neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. Love of neighbor and love of God are both vitally important to our orthodoxy, if you will. The Ephesians were loving God, but not neighbor. And we know what John says about that elsewhere. Christ Jesus, our high priest, does not merely give the criticism without providing a short, clear, and effective corrective. So, let's look at Christ's corrective, or you might say the cure. Christ's cure. But Christ's corrective. Verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. The, The first line literally reads, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Remember. That's the first thing there to do. To remember from where. That's where I love the word whence. I know it's old, but from whence. That just works so much better. From where? From whence. Remember that place you were at from whence you have fallen. It was so good, but now look where you are. There was a time when the Ephesian believers had genuine love for one another. When compassion and pity pervaded their atmosphere, not suspicion and mistrust. A time when their hearts would have been warm toward the needy among them, not cold. They'd remember this. This should move them to repent, to change direction, to change the way they thought, to begin to feel again, to feel sorrow in their heart about their behavior. And then that should lead to doing the things, literally the works they did at first. The works they did at first. It wasn't simply enough to begin with the third step. Orthopraxy without orthopathos was not enough. Right practice without right feeling was not enough. They couldn't just work their way out of it. They had to feel right too. They had to go from cold to warm in their affections. Remembering and repenting would allow the works to grow out of compassion. But neither could they stop remembering and repenting. or stop with remembering and repenting, they had to do the works from a heart of love as well. Well, there are now two possible outcomes to this corrective. What happens if they repent and what happens if they don't? And we see that in the final heading, Christ's consequence. Second half of, uh, well, somewhere, yeah, second half of uh, verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And then, of course, we have that commendation that we read earlier, the second commendation. But then, verse 7, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, so first, there are negative consequences. If they do not heed this warning, Jesus will come and remove their lampstand from its place. Well, clearly, this, this warning has teeth, but what does it mean? What does it mean that the lampstand will be removed from its place? It could mean that the church would shut down, and that certainly is possible. Although the lampstand represents the church, it doesn't refer to the organization that we call the church, but the church as the light of the world. That's what the reference to the lampstand being the church is. The church is the light of the world as a witness to the kingdom of God. Removing their lampstand could mean that their witness to the world around them would be over. They would be unfaithful witnesses rather than faithful witnesses like Jesus and John are presented in chapter 1. And if that were so, if their, if their witness was removed to the world, if their light is put out to the world, if the church shut down, it would be of no consequence anyway because a church without light or with light hidden under a basket is without consequence in the world. So I, I would argue that it might mean that the church is shut down, but that's secondary to the real issue. Their witness is put out, which would grieve a true believer. It also implies that if they don't heed the warning, they would not receive the promised positive reward. And what is this positive consequence or reward that is being offered? The one who has ears to hear, who who remembers, repents, 
and does the first works, in other words, will be victorious, and Christ will give them the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, of course, this harkens back to the Garden of Eden, paradise, and the tree of life, which after the fall in chapter 3 of Genesis, the people had been prevented from eating because it allowed them to live forever. God forbid we live in this broken, fallen, diseased, painful world forever. What a curse that would be. The tree of life represents eternal life in the age to come. In other words, if they begin living the life of the coming age, the new creation now, toward one another, by loving one another, by having mercy and compassion, that's the life of the age to come, contrary to the life of this world, if they do that, they will get to continue living in that life forever after this age is gone. Now, there's another connection in this paradise and tree of life that would have been very relevant for the church in Ephesus. It's secondary, but it is important. You may recall in the early days of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, we read of how Paul, after initially being forbidden to go to Ephesus by the Spirit, don't go there. I mean, a study of the book of Acts, if you just follow it on a map, and you may remember this from the series we did in Acts years ago, but it Paul enters into Asia Minor and he's trying to get to the chief city, which would be Ephesus, but nope, forbidden to go there. Nope, goes over to Greece. He circles circles it like, you know, he's planning, you know, a military might do to encircle something before he takes it. He's circling it with the gospel in all these towns. And finally then, he's permitted to go there. And that, you know, so here we read in Acts 19, he's he's there. And, and, um, there, there's, there's a tremendous response to the gospel, which leads to the believers being expelled from the synagogue. So they go to the auditorium next door, and Paul preaches and teaches for two years in this auditorium until, quote, all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now that's being a witness, right? Your, their light was shining. The entire province of Asia, which doesn't mean what we think of as Asia, but Asia Minor, Turkey, where these seven churches were, really there, we, we can identify at least ten in Scripture that were in that area, that, that the entire province heard the word of the Lord. Now, there, when the believers started confessing their sorcery, so these believers start bringing their books to be burned, these scrolls, and I, the value of the books in today's dollars is probably somewhere close to $18 million. That's a bunch of money. They're burning these. And don't you think that might cause a little bit of an uproar in the city? Yeah. Money is the answer to everything, as somebody once said. Um, I believe he was the author of Ecclesiastes. But anyway, (laughs) in Ephesus, the chief goddess was Artemis. Not a very flattering name today, but it apparently was then. Or in in Latin, Diana in in the Roman world. And as they rioted... So, so they, they come together, they start a riot over this whole burning of stuff and their loss of monies and profits um, and all that's involved. They begin to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they shout that for two hours. I mean, imagine the, just the, the loud cacophony of great is Artemis of the Ephesians with all these people around. Awful experience, no doubt. But Artemis was always pictured for worship with a tree in her image. And... It went back to how she was originally worshipped in a tree shrine in a grove, and the name of that grove was Paradise. What mentioned here, Paradise of God. Paradise, and this, you know, with this tree. So the point, I think, in, in using this image that would have been heard by the Ephesians is that the, the, the paganism of Ephesus, it promised flourishing, but only Christ could deliver on that flourishing. Amen? Let me just close with some thoughts here. For many in the church today, charisma and celebrity status is considered far more important than the character or life of preachers and teachers. Would to God we were more like the Ephesians. Would to God we were more like the Ephesians in that regard. Congregations are often motivated more out of fear of what they might lose than how Christ calls them to live despite what they might lose. I would suggest that the church today is in deep danger of losing its witness, our lampstand in the world.
if we have not already done so, by and large. If the church is to be victorious, then it must be the church. We must be the people of God whom we have been called to be, living as God called us to live. You've heard me cite Cabin Row before many times. I'll say it again here because it's relevant. Churches are to be, quote, thriving communities that bear witness to the inbreaking reign of God that Jesus announces and embodies in all that we do and are. We are to be, quote, a picture of and testament to God's reign. In other words, we are to be an amazing lampstand, shining bright. That's who we are to be. At age 65, Leslie Newbigin retired from missionary service in India. He and his wife, Helen, decided to travel from India, where they had been for many years now, to England overland, using local transportation and hitchhiking. Figure this. Guy doing mission work for all those years at 65, he and his wife were going to hitchhike back to England from India. The journey took two months, during which only once, only once were they unable to find other Christians with whom to fellowship. And that was in Turkey, otherwise known as Asia Minor, oh, and the location of these seven churches. The Newbigins found that in the late 20th century, the lampstand of the church in that region had been dismantled. It shook them. And they struggled with the fact that a great living church can be completely destroyed. Of course, I don't know the particular circumstances. I'm sure there was a Christian somewhere in Asia Minor and probably more than just one by far. But that he was unable to locate at that time and in that space speaks to a reality that the church was ineffectual. Has the church in America lost its witness? And if so, how do we remember, repent, and start to do the works which we did at the first? I want to just take it. I know we've run a few minutes late. Had a lot to cover this morning, but we'd be remiss. Just a couple of minutes as the team comes forward. Just to pause. A couple of minutes of quiet reflection. On what... uh, on what Christ, who is in our midst, walking among us, might be saying to us about fundamental changes that are necessary in our lives, in the way we are living, in order to shine brightly in a dark world. So let's just take some time to consider that. That's not the final response, to be sure. That has to happen when we leave here. Every day. But just like... Remembering and repenting preceded do the works that you did at the first. It it is an important step in the process. Let's just do that. Take a moment where you are. Father, help us. Open our eyes to see.